The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Laura. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're, uh, we're right in the center of our summer series in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, I'll start this way. In the past decade, there have been two words that have been added to the American lexicon. The first is boomeranging. You know what that is? That's when young adults who have recently graduated from college move back in with mom and dad. Uh, in 2012, a full 85% of young adults graduating from college moved back, at least for a time, with mom and dad. Time magazine says that it's become increasingly hard for young adults to become independent from their parents. Some of the factors behind the boomeranging effect include increases in housing costs, uh, a limited uh, amount of jobs available, uh, and student debt. And there's also a fourth factor for some young adults uh, that is uh, often referred to as the failure to launch. The failure to launch, and there are two contributing factors to the failure to launch. One is unmotivated, entitled, moochy man-children. The second factor is parents who let it happen. When you've got two unhealthy people working together, it doesn't work out well. When you've got one unhealthy person and, uh, and a healthy entity, it, it can lead to healthy things. The other word that's been added to the American lexicon is adulting. Uh, interestingly, Laura, who just read our scripture, has written a book on adulting, a uh, very worthwhile read for young adults and their parents. But did you notice this is a noun, adult, that's become a verb, adulting. For young adults in this fourth group, the failure to launch group, this is a, an especially germane, relevant word. 
Adulting is defined this way. Definition number one, to behave in an adult manner, to engage in activities associated with adulthood. Second definition, to make someone behave like an adult, to turn someone into an adult. And so, today's passage, we've got the Apostle Paul, who is a father figure to the church of Jesus Christ, to the people of God, to, to God's healthy, motivated, and to God's unhealthy, demotivated children. We have this apostle who is saying to all of us, don't boomerang. Be an adult. Grow up. Continue, in other words, toward the path of maturing. He's in a way echoing what he said about himself in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter on love. He says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, when I grew up, when I started adulting, I gave up my childish ways. And the resource that God has given us is Himself. It's God who works in you, it says, to become a spiritual adult, to, to, to will and to work according to His good pleasure instead of your own. But here's the great benefit of that. The more you will and work toward His good pleasure, the more likely you're going to become the best, healthiest, happiest, most life-giving, and most life-receiving version of yourself. And so, so there are two, uh, two headings today, two aspects of what it means to, to guard ourselves from the boomerang effect to become adults. One is a given life, and the second is a loving demeanor. So first, a given life. To, to become an adult, to grow up spiritually as a child of God, which is a phrase that's used of, of believers in Christ in this passage, it means surrender, wholesale surrender. And that doesn't mean I will ever be completely surrendered in this fallen life that I live. But I should be able to track my own personal history, and you should be able to track your, your own, where next year you're a little bit more mature than you were last year, and the year after that you're a little bit more mature than you, you were the year before. We should be consistently moving toward grown-upness. And we do that as we increasingly take our own hands off of our own lies recognizing that we've been bought with a price. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you've always surrendered, as you've always aligned your life to the will of God, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. What a parental statement. You know that something good's happened in the parent-child relationship when the child begins to live in a healthy way and make mature decisions when they don't have to, when their parents are no longer looking over them and, and guiding them and steering them. It's a sophomore in college who goes to church every week. It's the 23-year-old who doesn't do weekend drinking binges, but who works really hard at her job. And, and has goals and motivations and a career path and so on. It's the person who sees friendship as an occasion for loyalty, not as an occasion to use other people to get ahead. 
and who chooses to do so when mom and dad aren't anywhere to be found, at least in terms of physical presence. See, but here's the thing about healthy adult independence. It, it means become, becoming less dependent on those who raised you, but more dependent on the God who made you. He continues, Paul does in verse 13, God works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. And how does this happen? It happens as we cooperate. Verse 16, as we hold fast, as God works in us, we hold fast to what Paul calls the Word of life. He's talking about the Scriptures. Adulting is recognizing that your best life is going to be your most fully yielded life to the Word and the will and the ways of God. Adult equals yielded. Do you notice how he describes the Scripture, though? He calls it the Word of life, the Word of vitality, the Word of living. A fish needs water to thrive. A car needs fuel to thrive. A human being needs the love and lordship of God to thrive. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said similar things. He says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. That's the British word for gasoline. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way or on our own terms without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because it is not there. Happiness and peace do not exist without the Lordship of God in our lives. And so, Paul says in verse 12, and this is, I think, an often misunderstood text of Scripture. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, wait, I thought that salvation was by grace, not by my works. And that's absolutely true. He does not say here, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who works out? Who goes to the gym? Who, who you know, has a treadmill in your home or in your office? You work out in order to strengthen what you already have. I'm not going to lose my biceps, but I do have a choice as to whether or not my biceps will be strong or flabby and weak, and, and that all depends on whether or not I work out my biceps. I have a heart somewhere underneath my ribcage. 
I have no fear that my heart is going to leave my body. It's not going to leave my body. But if I am mistreating my heart through a failure to work out, through a lack of aerobic exercise and movement and and a diet that is not conducive to healthy heart life, then I should fear and tremble. I should fear and tremble because of potential heart disease and things that come along with it, like oxygen deprivation and blockages and the ripple effect on on how the people in my life that I love and who love me will be affected if my heart is not right. And so, in a sense, I fear the outcome of my own laziness on my physical existence, on my health, and how it could potentially impact the people around me. And so, I work out. I work my heart. I work my body with a bit of fear and trembling. Not that I'm going to lose my biceps. Not that I'm going to lose my heart. In the same way, you're not going to lose your salvation. Your judgment day is taken care of. It, it, It was taken care of fully on the cross. Jesus said, it's finished. He really meant it. You're secure, but you're only going to enjoy that security. You're only going to live in the strength of that security if you work it out. If you take what God has put in you and work it out and grow in the process. How do we know that we're working out? How do we know that we have a given life? The clues are right there. Verse 12, you become stronger in obedience. God is your master, not your personal assistant. And more and more, your life starts to demonstrate that He is your master, not your personal assistant. Secondly, verse 16, holding fast to the Word of life. This has to do with the commands of God. It also has to do with the attributes of God. So, so His commands, you will find yourself, you know you're working out as you find yourself over time. It's incremental. It goes over the course of a lifetime. But as you track your life, you'll, you'll see something akin to a growth chart where you will see a full, or, or especially the people around you and who live closer to you and know you well, will see a fuller obedience in areas where you once resisted. Let's say you're predisposed toward greed. The people who know you best will, will start to know you as a less greedy and more generous person over time. Let's say you're predisposed to a hot temper. The people who know you the best will, will, will start over time, and it may take years, it may even take decades, but they will start to know because God works in you and because you're working out, they will start to notice that you become less enraged and more forgiving over time. If you're predisposed toward being rude, the people who know you best will notice that you're becoming more kind. If you're predisposed to telling lies, the people who know you best will notice you telling the truth more and more than you used to. That's what growth looks like. When you work out your muscles, they grow. They get stronger and healthier and it's noticeable to people around you. I mean, you love this, don't you? Somebody comes up to you and says, you've been working out? You're like, nah, not yeah, I have. (laughs) 
How'd you notice? Give me a few details about how you noticed, right? And, and the same effect, somebody is going to say to you, you've been working out. You're more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-impulse control. You've been working out, haven't you? Tell me about that. The other thing is that you will, you will grow in an affection, a fuller affection towards, toward the attributes of God, whatever they are, that you once really disliked. You may be a justice person and a holiness person and a law person, and the grace and love of God makes you really uncomfortable. Because how could somebody like that be acceptable in the eyes of God? I mean, I'm better than them, right? It's, it's the Javert effect from, from Les Mis. He couldn't live with the fact that that Valjean was actually a better human being than he was. Or if you're a love person, my God is a God of love. Well, good for you. But where is law and holiness and accountability and discipline and, and judgment, judgment in your picture of God? Are you starting to develop a fuller affection for those parts of God that you used to ignore or stuff down or maybe even despise. Maybe it's time, as Paul says in Romans 11, for you to start considering the kindness and severity of God at the same time. You know, Bertrand Russell, the, the British atheist, wrote this book very famous book called Why I Am Not a Christian. Interestingly, there, there are a lot of people who have actually become Christians from reading Russell's work there. But he said this, I am not a Christian because Jesus taught about hell. And I can't believe in a God who would punish anybody. But then contrast Bertrand Russell with the prophet Ezekiel, who is a reluctant prophet because the message that God gave to Ezekiel was to preach… Uh, a message of judgment to the people of Israel for their sins. And God said, I want you to take this scroll with all of my words of judgment, and I want you to eat it. And, and, and He put it in His mouth, and He said, surprisingly, it tasted to me like honey. Is the palate of your soul undeveloped, or is it growing more and more refined for those parts of God that you used to despise. You know, a wine connoisseur can drink a $200 glass of wine and, and regard it as the, the, the most life-giving moment of their year. Give that same glass of wine to a four-year-old and they will vomit with the first sip. Is your soul refined? Is the palate of your soul been developed? Or are you still vomiting beautiful things? about your God. The problem isn't with Him, it's with you. A given life, but the second attribute of adulting is a loving demeanor. You know, verse 12, Paul uses this term of endearment, my beloved. Now, now this is his word for the church, for people who identify as followers of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to really drill into that, the love dynamic between the people of God, especially leaders and their people, and, and we'll look at Timothy and Epaphroditus and how Paul relates to both of them. But for now, Paul's talking about our demeanor as 
followers of Christ toward the world that does not follow Christ. He says we live in the midst of what he calls a crooked and twisted generation. What are the people of Jesus to do in a crooked and twisted generation? He says live in the midst. Live in the midst of. But first, some history. There were two prevailing philosophies at that time about how people of faith were supposed to relate to a secular culture that was crooked and twisted. One group was the Pharisees. You could call them perhaps the conservative moralists, the, the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> middle class and spirit folks who prided themselves on being virtuous and moral and so on. And the way that they related to secular culture, and it was easy to identify them, they carried with them a superior demeanor. We are better than them. You see this pictured in the Pharisees' prayer in the 18th chapter of Luke, thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors, and so on. But you also see it in the way that the rabbis prayed in those times, and Paul had once been one of them. Thank you, my God, that I am not a woman a slave, or a Gentile. And, and when a Pharisee would pick up the Bible and read it, and then get up and use what they had read, they would use what they'd read in the Bible chiefly as a weapon and a defense mechanism rather than as the treasure that it is. They would read it and then scrutinize others while congratulating themselves. Easy to spot. But then there's another group called the Sadducees, who might be referred to as the progressive liberals, the open-minded establishment of the first century. And instead of separating from culture like the Pharisees did, they assimilated into it. They followed the direction of the wind so that their status in certain social circles was not threatened. They valued things like personal autonomy, my truth is just as valid as your truth, and so on, which we talked about last week. But the people of Jesus, Paul says, are going to be neither of these. You, you want to protect yourself from boomeranging, you want, to, you want to adult spiritually, then you'll be neither. You will not separate from a crooked world, you'll live in the midst of it, he says. And you won't assimilate into it either and become indistinguishable from it. Instead, you will shine as lights, he says, in this kind of generation. It's like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his masterful exposition on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that, that, the, uh, that, that, that people are going to be drawn to Jesus Christ, not when Christians become like the world, but when Christians become different from the world. The key difference between a Pharisee and a Christian, though, the key difference between somebody who's different from the world by standing above the world and against the world, a Pharisee, and a Christian is this. It's in verse 14. Are you a Christian? Then you will do everything, it says, without grumbling or disputing. How's it going on social media for you right now? How's it going in your political conversations right now? How's it going in your church life? Because here's how 
A Christian lives in the midst of a crooked, outraged generation. A Christian will do everything without grumbling and disputing. Christian and stick-in-the-mud, contradiction in terms. They don't go together. They can't go together. Christian and grump. A Christian who is a grump is either a Christian who has forgotten his or her true identity or a grump who's not really a Christian. There's no such thing as a steady Christian grump. If you really believe that Romans 5.8 is true, that God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile, while we were still vomiting the sweet taste of God out of our mouth, that's when Christ died for us. That is when Christ died for us. Not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. If you really believe that, you will be one of the most non-offendable people in the world. Non-offendable. Love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, is not easily offended. How are you doing on social media? How are you doing in your home? How are you doing with your colleagues? How are you doing inside your church? Love is not easily offended. Even from prison, verse 18, Paul says, be glad and rejoice with me. This was one of the most mistreated persons of his time, and you don't see a shred of outrage in Paul. Not a shred. He's a different kind of fighter. He doesn't fight against the world. He fights for the world. He fights not against hearts, but for hearts. Okay, I need to land the plane here. Two names, Jerry Falwell, Larry Flint. Jerry Falwell was a Baptist preacher, founded the so-called Moral Majority Movement, blamed 9-11 on the pagans, abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, ACLU, and secularists. Sharp critic of the pornography industry. Larry Flint, pornography mogul, founded Hustler Magazine. 1983, Larry Flint publishes this inflammatory parody of Jerry Faldwell, portraying the preacher as a vile hypocrite. And Falwell's lawyers took this to court, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled in Larry Flint's favor based on freedom of speech. During the trial, Falwell's lawyer asked Larry Flint this question, did you publish this spoof on Falwell in order to harm Jerry Falwell's reputation? Flint's answer, to assassinate it. Even Christians have, and I think in some ways legitimate, misgivings about Jerry Falwell. Most of us, I would dare say, would not identify with the things that he said about 9-11 and, and, and many other similar behaviors behind a microphone. That being said, you can't and mustn't define the whole of a person 
only by virtue of their very worst behaviors. I know scores of people who graduated from Liberty University, which was founded and, and was president, you know, and, uh, founded by Jerry Falwell and he was president. Not a single one of them who knew him personally would describe him as anything but kind, loving, and generous. Falwell and Flint went on Larry King Live together after the Supreme Court decision, and at one point in that interview, Jerry Falwell reaches over to Larry Flint and just gives him a hug. And for whatever reason, that hug broke the ice between these two. And after Falwell died in May of 2007, five days after Falwell's death, an essay by Larry Flint came out in the Los Angeles Times, a tribute to Jerry Falwell. It said this, in the years that followed our disagreements and up until his death, he'd come to see me every time he was in California. We'd have interesting philosophical conversations. We'd exchange personal Christmas cards. He showed me pictures of his grandchildren. Truth is, the Reverend and I had a lot in common. We steered our conversations away from politics, but religion was always within bounds. He wanted to save me and was determined to get me out of the business. In the end, I knew what he was selling and he knew what I was selling, and we found a way to communicate. To this day, I'm not sure if his television embrace was meant to mend fences, but the ultimate result was one I never expected and was just as shocking a turn to me as was that famous Supreme Court case. We became friends. I'll end with this. The very worst of Jerry Falwell the very worst of Larry Flint is right there inside of you. What are you going to do with that information? There's another public embrace. It's right in front of us. It's called the Lord's Supper, a perfectly virtuous, beautiful, life-giving preacher reaching over to us publicly to us who wanted to assassinate all or at least part of his character and of his reputation, spitting out the sweet wine. And what does he do? He demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still publishing parodies against him, that's when he died for us. And what do we get with Jesus Christ, the preacher who reached out to us with a surprising embrace? We've become friends. Can you live with that? Let's pray. God, you have demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What better reason to become non-offendable, non-boomeranging, adulting followers of Jesus Christ who work out the gift that we can never lose.
Strengthen the muscles and strengthen the heart of our faith, we pray. And show us what it means for us to participate in that endeavor. May we fear and may we tremble, becoming less than what you've intended. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.